Support for Iowa Catholic Radio and Making It Personal is provided by Sarah Vocations Ministry. Learn more at joinserra.org. Making It Personal with Bishop William Johnson on Iowa Catholic Radio and iowacatholicradio.com. Welcome to Making It Personal with Bishop Johnson. I'm Jean Till. And on today's show, we're visiting with Timothy O'Malley. He is the Director of Education and Academic Director of the Notre Dame Center for Liturgy, an executive member of the Eucharistic Revival, and author, which is what we're talking about today, Becoming Eucharistic People, the Hope and Promise of Parish Life. Gene, so good to be with you. Here's yes. just a bit balmy heat wave here at the end of this week, you know, up into the 30s. What? Who needs to go to Arizona or Florida, right? right? right. You know, you just kind of... You know, I miss that 40 below winter. Do you? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Are you yeah. kind of have those uh, Nordic genes or something. Okay, I don't bless know. me, Father uh, yes. Fry. Have All right, <laughs> there we go. But uh, So it's good to be back, and mm-hmm. I'm getting used to the fact of a Saturday morning slot. So yes. Iowa Catholic Radio, Spirit Catholic Radio Network, affording us Saturday time. So yes. Saturday morning and Saturday afternoon with the uh, Spirit Catholic Radio Network. So hopefully people have found us and will yes. continue to track us. Grateful again for the sponsorship of the Sarens and mm. all that they do to promote vocations, the diaconate religious life, and the priesthood as well. We kind of had some marvelous saints to inspire us this week. You know, we finished the week of Christian unity, the conversion of St. Paul. Yes. It's Timothy and Titus also uh, spending time uh, out and about and, uh, and next week looking to really being on the road as we celebrate Catholic Schools Week. So I was already at uh, St. Albert Catholic School this past Wednesday as we interviewed president candidates. Oh, well, that's a little right. mystery uh, mm-hmm. will remain there for who will ultimately assume that important role. I won't in, tell in anybody. Education. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll wait till break then. Oh, okay. 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 But, uh, and then next week, we'll be looking forward to be with the Dolly Catholic High School community and then all the Metro, Des Moines Metro Catholic parish uh, staffs, uh, school staffs, mm-hmm. will be at St. Joseph on the east side of Des Moines. Then we make our way out to Shelby County Catholic School. On Thursday, the 1st of February, and then St. Albert Catholic School on the Feast of the Presentation on Friday morning with an all-school Mass. So very much looking forward to that and celebrating together. Don't want to overlook, you know, you know my great devotion to Francis de Sales, whose feast day was this past Wednesday. Such a a doctor, a subtle doctor of grace in so many ways, and his ways of kind of putting out a spiritual life that is accessible and attractive to all of us. He invokes some unique image. But he speaks about the beauty of our relationship with God, how God draws us with cords of humanity, charity, and friendship. That God always respects our human freedom, and that the power of grace is not something that constrains us, but attracts us. Grace possesses a holy violence, not to violate our liberty, but to guide it with love. We know sometimes in, in January, a lot of people are adopting great spiritual disciplines, right? Dry right. January or, mm-hmm. you know, anticipating Exodus 90. You know, we're mm-hmm. only a couple of weeks from the beginning of Lent. Uh, our readings on the, on the third <laughs> Sunday of Ordinary Time already suggested a kind of mm-hmm. call to conversion as well. But uh, I think as Francis puts us forward, that again, attracting us, uh, not, uh, you know, to do violence ultimately to our souls, but to, to bring forth that which is already there. He has this curious image from ornithology, uh, uh, that Aristotle, the philosopher, refers to the apodons. These are birds that evolution didn't do them any favor. Uh, their weight, their mass, uh, they have such short and weak legs that it doesn't help them at all. If they fall to the ground, they are really grounded. They can't even take flight by just merely uh, our wings. They depend on the wind then to arise and get to a certain velocity. But you have to extend your wings. Mm. And that yes. sense then, too. Otherwise, they'll remain on the ground and die. 
But if that wind, and we can think of the thrust of the Holy Spirit in our lives, if we extend our wings, that call to love, if we open them to the Spirit, we, God indeed will give us that vector of buoyant force that will take us where he wants us with his loving kindness, always respecting our freedom. So it's up to us either to take flight or to remain on the ground because God does, doesn't do anything without our consent. So Francis de Sales, continue to be a patron and uh, your friendship with St. Jane de Chanel, but all the saints of God whom we'll celebrate in this way in these beautiful days of ordinary times. So mm-hmm. looking forward to reflecting on the, the heart of it all, the mystery of the Eucharist with Professor O'Malley. And St. Francis de Sales, pray, pray for, for us. us. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we will be visiting with Timothy O'Malley, Director of Education and Academic Director of the Notre Dame Center for Liturgy, an executive member of the Eucharistic Renewal, and author, Becoming Eucharistic People, The Hope and Promise of Parish Life. You're listening to Making It Personal with Bishop Johnson on Iowa Catholic Radio and the Spirit Catholic Radio Network. Support for Iowa Catholic Radio comes from First Heartland Financial Group consultant Scott Prickett, an independent financial firm offering personalized financial advice with your insurance and investments for all stages of life. 515-202-6218 or online at firstheartlandfinancialgroup.com. I'm Father Thomas Loya, and this week on Light of the East on the Iowa Catholic Radio Network, St. John Paul II reminded us that the church breathes with two lungs, east and west, two complementary approaches to the one same faith and same pope with their own respective styles of expression. But what is it that the two lungs have in common? Light of the East, Sunday mornings at 1030 on the Iowa Catholic Radio Network. Welcome back to Making It Personal with Bishop Johnson. And on today's show, we're visiting with Timothy O'Malley, the Director of Education and Academic Director of the Notre Dame Center for Liturgy, the Executive Member of the Eucharistic Renewal, and author, Becoming Eucharistic People, The Hope and Promise of Parish Life. Good to have you back with us, Professor O'Malley. Bishop Johnson here, and uh, thank you amidst your many uh, demands. And you are in demand, mm. especially in the midst of the Eucharistic Revival, as one of the members of the Executive mm-hmm. Committee, the USCCB uh, initiative. Uh, so who's getting more frequent flyer miles these days, you or Bishop Cousins of Crookston, who kind of chairs that that group? Uh, <laughs> definitely Bishop Cousins, although I did get to go to Hawthorne, Oklahoma, which I suspect he hasn't, which oh, is a rural <laughs> parish in the Diocese of Tulsa. So I have spent a lot more time in rural Oklahoma, I suspect, than Bishop Cousins. There he is. He's laid down the gauntlet, Bishop oh, Cousins. Man. So good. So is it more... Uh, you know, because, you know, you're beautiful and compelling, you know, work as a theologian, but not as a theologian who distinguishes himself from the uh, the church or her, her pastors in any way, but very much a collaborative venture. Uh, are you more involved at the diocesan levels or are parishes uh, inviting you, or is it a combination of both? And how does this impact then your own scholarly work at the center? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think I've spent a lot of time speaking at dioceses and schools. Uh, I think that's been the larger focus. Certainly my own parishes in my diocese, I have made myself available to do anything that they need. Uh, but Bishop Rose uh, must know, be think, very happy with that then. Yes, yes <laughs> Bishop Rose is very happy with that. So, uh, yeah, so my own parish, for example, uh, very awkwardly last year, in fact, gave out a copy of my book. So there's nothing like your book being given out to everyone uh, <laughs> while you're sitting there. Uh, and being told, you can be told that people didn't like it directly. So uh, <laughs> you, 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 didn't, you didn't find copies out lying out in the parking lot, did you? <laughs> no. I assume one day I'll find a lot in used bookstores. <laughs> 
so uh, going for several cents. So, yeah, no, I think it has impacted my scholarship and what I'm working on. I think the revival and especially thinking through the way that the revival can uh, inspire an ecclesial renewal, inspire communion in the church in a time of sort of deep fracture. Uh, I think it's really focused, and in fact, focused the work of our center uh, over the last several years as we've thought through how we can promote that in parishes, in dioceses, and even to, to raise it up within the academy. And so this even preceded the Eucharistic revival, really. The, uh, the Spirit was already kind of moving you all in that direction. Is that is fair to say? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, it was part. I actually just finished a third. It was so the becoming Eucharistic people is now part of a trilogy, mm-hmm. and uh, the first book planned was really on real presence. That was before the revival had really uh, been mentioned to me. Uh, mm-hmm. And this was most uh, this becoming Eucharistic people book was d- designed for the revival. Uh, and then I wanted to do something on the actual materiality of the mass, and that's coming out this May. Uh, it's on. It's sort of a riff off of Romano Guardini's Sacred Signs. How does the materiality of the liturgy lead to an encounter with Christ? So, it's it's a general project I'm interested in, and how worship can uh, be integral to the renewal of Catholic life. Not just kind of rituals that you do and that are, are nice and pleasant, but it's at the heart of what we do as Catholics and our our social life, our cultural life, uh, our way of offering a prophetic witness against some of the effects of technology and even the degradation of personhood, I think the Eucharist is at the center of it all. Wow. So now, no small stuff, but yeah. but, but you have a, a particular gift, I, I might say, in making this accessible for, for people of various backgrounds, different degrees of education, and, and even familiarity with the Catholic doctrine and, and that. So, you know, that's, that's no small feat. Uh, just to kind of maybe, you know, by way of prelude, and I'm not saying, you know, in any way you're you're ambivalent or not, but you kind of are, are subtle and, and nuanced as you talk about the, the phenomenon of a kind of anti-communion, which is not just out there in the world outside the, the church, but has made its way even within the church, too, and the kind of polarity that we, we know and that we see has a political dimension. But at the same time, you know, you, you, you call us to embrace culture, to be agents of culture. So there's a critique, but there's also an affirmation in that. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think I'm pretty uh, immersed in the school of, or in the Second Vatican Council, in Lumen Gentium and Gaudium et Spes alike, the two constitutions that proclaim the Church as a witness to communion, to the triune God in the midst of the world. Uh, and yet, at the same time, uh, right, uh, notes that this has to be both a positive and a negative dimension, right? That that critique, there is a critique about this, right? This communion comes about and it critiques certain dimensions of our political life, right? I don't need to tell listeners in Iowa uh, about politics right now. Um, <laughs> Thank goodness uh, that but, caravan's moved on, right? Yeah, so, okay. yeah that's anyway. moved on. New, it's, it's New Hampshire's season and then on and on. So, you know, I think that's the, uh, there's politics, but there's also the sort of ecclesiastical uh, dimensions. Uh, certainly, I saw it in the midst of COVID in my own diocese, where, you know, Catholics were at each other's throats over things like masks and vaccines and uh, what practices of worship were unfolding and reception in the hand versus on the tongue. And uh, then, of course, you know, don't even sort of address Pope Francis and uh, the reaction to a variety of folks to Pope Francis. Today. So we really are at a space, I think, of 
uh, a, a lack of communion in the church, that we forgot that we're gathered not around particular platforms or influencers, but we're gathered around the person of Christ who convenes us and convokes us to communion uh, around the altar, right? And that's the space by which we're healed. So, I, yes, I mean, I'm very critical of this dimension of our culture, uh, but I note that the church can actually contribute to healing it if we want. Amen. Amen. Uh, and, you know, you offer definitions of culture you draw from the Second Vatican Council and the various ways there, the ways in which man develops and perfects his many bodily and spiritual qualities. We are incarnate beings by knowledge and labor to bring the world itself under control, but not to dominate it, I might say, you know, but to make social life truly more human. And that resonates with me in terms of what uh, late St. John Paul II, defining culture as the realm of the human as such, which inspired the late Francis Cardinal George to say, that an evangelizer of culture brings out evils only to show the power of God's word, to heal and to uplift, to unify and bind with love. So we have to have a love for people and their culture or the diversity of cultures. And you may, that's a point you make in the book is that some people kind of think that, well, the cultures are those exotic people who come from somewhere else, but everybody embodies a culture, even the kind of suburban mindset that thinks, well, we've kind of, we're, we're post-culture in a way. We kind of you know, moved in this homogenous zone. Is that a, is that something that you're kind of trying to awaken people to appreciate and maybe even be converted? Absolutely. Yeah, I think every parish possesses what you might say a culture, right? A certain lived assumptions, habits, practices that make sense of the world. You know, I was born in South Florida. My parish was this uh, sort of Irish Catholic parish that uh, was most renowned for having two carnivals per year uh, <laughs> that, uh, in the area. Uh, Father O'Reilly uh, was a lover of these carnivals. And so, um, you, you know, I and think. And not just is, for the financial gains that it might have afforded the parish. But, no, uh, no, no. There were many benefits, but it did actually have a lot of financial gains, uh, I think. Uh, there was, it was the most widely attended carnival in, in the uh, Archdiocese of Miami. So oh. I was quite widely attended. Uh, so uh, I. I think every parish has a culture. My parish has a culture, you know, in Granger, Indiana, which is a kind of suburban place. Uh, and so the the attention I want to draw is that if that culture exists, we, the Eucharist ought to be an inspiration to make that culture ever more conform to Christ. And also to, therefore, to critique those dimensions of our culture that are not attuned to that formation unto Christ, and uh, that we as parishes might become these spaces of Eucharistic cultures, uh, a Eucharistic culture for all to behold, rather than, uh, you know, just a culture that doesn't go out and doesn't transform the neighborhood and the cosmos. So I'm very interested in this parish culture and how a parish can become ever more Eucharistic. Oh, that's uh, music to my ears, certainly with our initiatives in the Diocese of Des Moines, where we want to cultivate connections in Christ through encounter, through calling people to friendship with Jesus, and hence, if that happens, then communion with each other as well. But it's not something that is uh, instinctive for Catholics, right, to be inviting and welcoming. I continue to, to hear the, the, the kind of contrast with some of our evangelical and Protestant brothers and sisters for whom hospitality and invitation and and inviting people, uh, you know, maybe not immediately, hey, let's go to Mass together, but those other ways where we make those human connections. How, uh, have, how have you seen parishes maybe be uh, transformed in that way? Or do you have hope as, you know, as some of the messages that you embody in this book uh, have been uh, appropriated by folks? Yeah, I really hope that there's a larger capacity to witness to uh, the love of our faith 
in Jesus Christ and in the Eucharist? Why does it matter to you? I think a lot of what I've seen is really, I've emphasized that, you know, especially when I talk to folks who are very concerned about their children leaving the church or, you know, how do they get them back? And there's a good sort of worry, like, well, you know, what's the right thing I say that suddenly is going to become, you know, the convincing thing to get my uh, lapsed Catholic son to come back to Mass? And I would say, well, you really need to witness to your love of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. What is it about the Eucharistic liturgy that's essential for you? And I think that's why any Eucharistic revival really starts with a renewal of those who are there and interested in the Church to begin with. And from there, to go out and invite people uh, to, to give the reason for our hope. You know, what's the gift of it all? Um, it's really forced me to think about my own story uh, you know, I grew up and my parents were not practicing Catholics. My grandparents were. They began to drag me to Mass, and I kind of fell in love with the Eucharist as a first grader, second grader. And, you know, at every sort of essential moment of my life, it's been the Eucharistic presence of our Lord, the sacrifice of the Mass, the communion of the Church that's been there. So uh, the more that we can we can articulate the gift of Catholic life in this Eucharistic way to meet Jesus in, in the Mass, but also to meet Him, therefore, in one another through this Eucharistic mystery, and be particular about it and tell our stories, I think that's the way forward, and that's where I've seen some fruits, but I hope even more fruits come about in the coming years. Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, I mean, you were particularly grace, but this is something available to all if we allow and give our young people this opportunity to have these moments you know, and trust God, the Word, the power of the Word, but then the Eucharist, which embeds all of this. I certainly identify with you in that, that there was just something impressed on me that early in my life, you know, and uh, not being force-fed all this, but that, mm-hmm. but Jesus just said, you know, and without it, for me, it doesn't hang together. The, the world doesn't make sense without <laughs> this, you know. I mean, I, I heard that uh, Padre Pio had the sign emblazoned on his wall, you know, Greatness is always accompanied with a certain measure of sadness. Greatness is always with sadness. And I think that's the Paschal mystery, you know, the, the suffering, the death, resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, all of that. And without that, we look at the world, and it just, uh, it, you know, it's there. So how the Mass, I love your phrase, transforms us in, you know, Jesus' love pouring out into every crack and crevice of the cosmos. I mean, it's just that, that dimension of that. But that has to happen first in our hearts and uh, to, to give it uh, that sense as well. Um, you know, getting back maybe to a little more critical moment, you know, you know, again, the senses, you talk about that, how liturgy, our postures and all that's there, but uh, we can't then let the pendulum swing too far and just have it be this kind of aesthetic experience that there are those for whom, you know, how, how the beauty of it all and how all oh, the music was sublime, you know, and, and all of that. How, how do we have to punctuate with silence but bring all this together in the experience of the Mass? Yeah, I'm very moved by Romano Guardini and his spirit of liturgy here, where he has these twin chapters that are, you know, the liturgy is play. And insofar as it's play, right, the Eucharistic liturgy involves materiality, it involves stuff, it involves beauty. Uh, There is a kind of delight in it all. But he follows that chapter on play immediately by the seriousness of the liturgy, specifically noting that, you know, for the esthete, right, a, a mass with poor singing or poor music, you know, is a failure, whereas the real 
real seriousness of the Mass as he describes it. It's that older woman who approaches the Eucharist and approaches the liturgical act as if salvation is at stake. And I think, for me, that's part of the renewal that needs to occur in the Church today around the Mass, that we're not just performing a series of pleasant rites uh, to, uh, you, you know, whether you're talking about the highest form of sort of liturgical act or you're talking about a kind of folk mass, the purpose of these things are not aesthetic. The purpose is salvation is at stake. And if we start from the point that, that our Lord comes to enter our lives, then those silences, the way that we pray the collect uh, as the priest, uh, the priest prays the collect, but we pray along and listening, um, all of that changes. The way that we use our bodies, the way that we approach the Eucharist to receive our Lord, uh, these are things that matter. But we have to start from the fact that the Mass is not just ritual play. It is the salvation. It is Christ's salvation made available to us, his sacrifice of love um, made present. So that's reverence to me. That's that's the heart of reverence, and it's not about liturgy wars. It's about um, what we do with our bodies should conform to the fact that salvation is coming about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> no small stakes there yeah. in, in any of that. And That's so, right. Yeah, no big deal. Yeah, and so, <laughs> the, so you know, I think there could be a great uh, rapprochement, a great reconciliation there for those who are inclined to the traditional Latin Mass, those who prefer other things. Where's the posture of the priest? Is he joined with the people facing... Beholding the living God in wonder and awe as he turned toward the altar together collectively. All of these things, I think, could be accommodated in all of this without being compromised. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but that would be my sensibility as I come. And then Gene is going to look at me and say, it's about time to take, take the pause. Here, so. <laughs> well, stay with us as we continue our conversation with Timothy O'Malley, author, Becoming Eucharistic People, The Hope and Promise of Parish Life. To find out more about Eucharistic Renewal, go online to Eucharistic Re- excuse me, EucharisticRevival.org. You're listening to Making It Personal with Bishop Johnson on Iowa Catholic Radio and the Spirit Catholic Radio Network. Support for Iowa Catholic Radio is provided by the Sarah Vocations Ministry, including the St. Sarah Club of Des Moines and the Sarah Club of Council Bluffs. Sarah is an apostolate of the Worldwide Catholic Church dedicated to fostering and supporting priesthood and religious vocations. Sarans strive to accomplish their mission through prayer, fellowship, and service to the bishop, priests, sisters, and all in religious formation, and in doing so to increase their own holiness. Learn more at joinsarah.org, joinserra.org. Thank you, Sarans, for your support of Iowa Catholic Radio. Support for programming provided by Trappist Caskets, a work of the monks of New Mallory Abbey in Piasta, Iowa. Embracing an honest approach to death can more readily affirm the real meaning of life. Trappist Caskets and urns are made in the prayerful environment of the monastery, using Iowa-grown wood from the Abbey's sustainable forest. Each casket and urn is blessed by a monk. Quietly laboring with their hands for 175 years, the monks offer workmanship at the pinnacle of woodworkers' craft, available for immediate delivery or as a part of a pre-planning program. Learn more at trappistcaskets.com. Welcome back to Making It Personal with Bishop Johnson. So I appreciate it. And I think, you know, perhaps uh, Pope Francis's Desiderio Desiderabi came out talking about the, the manner of the priest praying, his, his voice and everything else. And it's not a performance in, in any way, but truly, you know, that we lift each other up. And, it's not, and, and the, I also had to chuckle as you kind of talked about the banality of coaches and coach speak and everything else, you know, that we're not just kind of offering pious platitudes here, but that, that, that this mystery embedded in words and, and all that we're about and, and how we go. Um, the, you know, you, 
you, you do refer to that kind of uh, volatile moment in the you know the United States bishops talking about Eucharistic coherence, but then you do go forward and say you know and kind of you draw together in your concluding chapter you know about the Eucharist as a political sacrament, which could be you know flash words for mm. some people. But uh, what were you trying to emphasize and unfold for us there? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the Augustinian uh, dimension of the Eucharist in His City of God in Book 10 at the very center is the Eucharistic sacrifice. And that the consequence of the Eucharist is that we live in time and space differently because uh, of the fact that we receive the self-giving love of the Eucharistic Lord, and we are in communion with one another and therefore desire the transformation of the world. And so uh, I'm really speaking, I think, as uh, St. John Paul II noted, of, of solidarity. This is Eucharistic solidarity that the common good and the welfare of my neighbor has something to do with my life. I don't get to ignore that. And therefore, as Benedict XVI himself noted, to receive the Eucharist uh, means to results, it must result in the concrete practice of love, lest the Eucharist be intrinsically fragmented. And so we dwell in space differently. We dwell in time differently because of the Eucharist. We seek to, to transform and live in solidarity in our neighbors differently because of the Eucharistic mystery. Uh, that's, uh, that's how we dwell in space. It's a political thing, not as in political parties, but how we dwell in the city and how we create a city or, or allow God to create a city governed by Eucharistic love. And how, which goods claim us, which kind of get, get our attention. And obviously persons are, are primary and pivotal and all that. I think of Father Donald Haggerty as he talks about, you know, as we move into deep prayer and everything else, and suddenly it flows out and, and uh, we notice things. We notice people that we wouldn't have seen before because our whole kind of sensory apparatus has been converted by, you know, with the heart and mind of Christ in that beautiful way uh, to, to bring forward. Uh, you know, you know, at a certain point then, you know, to be continually formed in this mystery, I love how you draw from the directory of catechesis that came out, which I think is, is a pivotal thing, not only for our faith formation people, but for all of us. And you say, this has to be a slow kind of organic process. I kind of laugh and think about, you know, the Eucharist as slow food, you know, the slow food movement uh, that we have. But uh, this, 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 you know, St. Paul was converted in a pivotal moment, but then he had three years of really allowing all this to be absorbed. Uh, how... Is this something for us as as adults that uh, we need to take seriously? Yeah, I think it has to take place over the course of our lifetime. I mean, uh, Catholic's adult formation has been underemphasized in the Church, right? We often think about Eucharistic formation as something we do for children, and then it ceases, and then we just go to Mass. Uh, but as, you know, we get older and we have to see our whole lives according to this Eucharistic mystery, I'm thinking about parents contemplating what it means to celebrate the Mass and go to Mass and participate in it with their kids and all the difficulties of parenting. I'm thinking about elderly folks as they approach their own, you know, retirement and sometimes mortality and what this means in light of the Eucharistic mystery. Uh, the the sacrament of the Eucharist, because it is the sacrament of initiation we uh, enjoy for the totality of our lives, moves with us through our life cycle from really our first reception until our death. And that's, that's a slow appropriation of that mystery that occurs 52 Sundays a year and hopefully a lot of other days too. Yeah, and you expose this in terms of COVID, you know, how many of us had no idea who was alone without anyone to deliver them groceries in this loneliness, which is, a, I think, a pervasive phenomenon, but that the, our own unworthiness gives over to the sense of reshaping our lives and an offering of love bestowed to our neighbors. So, Professor O'Malley, thank you for the work you're doing. I don't know when the bishops come to Notre Dame at the end of February to talk about the, the Synod and to be formed in that, and the Center is one of our hosts. Are you going to be present for that? Do we look for the chance to cross paths then? Yes, no, I'll be there. I'm very much looking forward to it. All right. Well, thank you again, and God's blessing and anointing of your work. Thank you so much, Bishop.
This has been another edition of Making It Personal with Bishop Johnson. Thank you to our guests and to all of our listeners in Iowa, Nebraska, Wisconsin, or wherever you may be listening to Iowa Catholic Radio and the Spirit Catholic Radio Network. You can hear Making It Personal with Bishop William Johnson every week on Iowa Catholic Radio and iowacatholicradio.com. Support for Iowa Catholic Radio and Making It Personal is provided by Sarah Vocations Ministry. Learn more at joinserra.org.